ladies, and I think those of you in our congregation who know our sisters that ministered grace to us this morning know that behind these words that we heard so beautifully rendered this morning are stories. Everybody has a story, doesn't they? And you have a story, and they have a story. And the story is always a story of grace, but sometimes the story of grace takes the bearer of the story through a very, very dark valley. And all of the women who were up here ministering to us have been in those dark valleys. And so as they sang to us this morning the truth that we heard, They were witnessing to that truth with more than just their words. They did it with their lives. And some of us are going to have to do that in our own day. You're going to have to do that at some point in your life like they did. So I just want to take a minute as we turn to James 5 this morning and pray. And uh, just thank God for what we heard. Not just for the words that were sung, but for the message that was delivered by the lives of people that are very dear to us in our own congregation. And as we pray and thank God for them, I want us to pray for ourselves so that the Lord would help us when it comes our time to rest in the Lord. Can we do that? Would you just bow with me? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you that uh, you have so blessed our lives this morning as we have sung your word this morning together. And even as we listened to the message that you prepared in Garrett's heart for our children, that we would use our memories to remember more than just what happened to us, but to prepare so that we could cause others to celebrate the truth about you in our own dark valley, in our own dark path, in our own dark and hard space. And Lord, we have been reminded of that this morning through the ministry of our sisters how we thank you for them, how we praise you for your grace that is so evident in them. Lord, we don't know all the story, but we know some of the story. And you alone know everything. You alone know what you are choosing to do in realms beyond this one with every one of their stories. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grace that has sustained them and enabled them that would cause them to stand up in front of a congregation like ours and open their mouths to just give testimony to your goodness and to your wisdom. So, Lord, thank you for their ministry to us. We pray that you would bless them today and that you would continue to use them for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this has been an interesting week on a number of levels. I'm sure you have had... Uh, weeks that started out one way and you were anticipating the week would flow a certain way. And then God begins a series of interruptions that you did not anticipate, you did not see, you were not expecting. And some of those interruptions are welcomed. They are just like mercy drops that God rains into your life. And it's just a reminder as you experience whatever that interruption was, you are so glad that God did that. And then there are other interruptions that come into your life and they cause you to step back and view things with a little more sobriety 
perhaps than uh, you were thinking. And I had a number of those this week, and I'm sure that you did as well. I began remembering as I was driving around and seeing the different memorials that are in our city. There's one that I drive by almost every day on uh, my way to Greenville on 123. There on the hill are, are two replicas of the two towers that went down. And every time I drive by those uh, marble-looking, I don't think they're marble, but they certainly look that way, replicas of the two towers, as Pastor Brian said earlier, I remember exactly where I was. And this week especially has been a reminder as we prepare, even for this morning, to realize the impact of all of that on our country and on the world. I'm old enough to remember what travel was like before 9-11. And it fundamentally changed the way we move uh, from city to city and place to place. And then uh, many of you don't know this, but I was born in the Commonwealth of Britain. I was born in Auckland, New Zealand. My dad was a loyal subject of the Queen for almost his entire life, actually for his entire life. And uh, so when the news came on Thursday that Queen Elizabeth II, longest reigning monarch in history and certainly the only queen that British people of, most British people have ever known, died. That, I, don't, I don't know. I just, it was, it was unsettling. It shouldn't. I'm an American citizen. I'm so thankful for uh, what we have here in this country. My dad became a citizen in his 70s, but under his breath, he constantly says, God saved the queen. And uh, now he has to change that, and it's unsettling. And maybe you had a week like that. Maybe your week was very personal. Maybe you heard some news, or maybe you experienced something that you didn't anticipate, and God introduced to you as a gospel risk taker a dark place or an unsettling space. As we've been reading James together, one of the things that has been growing in my heart is the understanding of what he is doing. He is equipping gospel risk takers. You say, well, man, I'm not a risk taker. Every time you get up, you're a risk taker. Every time you go out, you're, you're a risk taker. And if you are a Christian, you are a gospel risk taker. And God is taking gospel risk takers through the pen of James And he is equipping them to tell the beautiful story of the gospel in the hardest and darkest of places and spaces. That's what he's doing. And you and I do that by demonstrating a living, vibrant faith that is wholehearted. It is single-focused. It is fully trusting in God and in his word. And all through the journey that we've been making with James, James has been driving that home in different ways and around different ideas. But if you boil it all down, James is saying, as a gospel risk taker, God intends for you to use your life to tell the beautiful story of the gospel in the hardest of places and in the darkest of spaces. And you're going to need a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith to do that. And to help us see different aspects of what this actually look like, looks like in real life, James has introduced us to five friends, and we have met three of them. We met Abraham in chapter 2. 
Abraham tells us that a living faith renders unquestioning obedience to God in the hardest places and in the darkest moments of life. Abraham's life is a life of living faith that constantly obeys without question. And then in that same chapter, we met Rahab. The beautiful story of Rahab uh, shows us that living faith displays radical loyalty to God in all the spaces and among all the people in our life, even our own town, even our own family, even our own friends. There is a higher loyalty, and Rahab displayed that living faith displays this loyalty no matter where it is and who it's with. And then we came all the way to chapter 5, and we met the third group of friends that James points us to, and he says, I want you to meet God's friends, the prophets. And we learn from the prophets that a living faith speaks graciously and plainly and boldly for God, no matter what the personal cost. And James says, now the next friend I want you to meet is a friend that you've been hearing about your entire life, and his name is Job. And James says, I want you to meet Job Because Job is going to teach us, Job is going to show us how a living faith suffers faithfully and endures prolonged pain and unexpected suffering unwaveringly. And that's really what we're going to see this morning. So let's begin back in chapter 5, verse 7, and I want you to notice where James starts. He starts as he gives us hope in this whirlwind of life that we sometimes encounter, he starts with a spiritual exhortation. He starts with a spiritual exhortation in verses 7 through 8. And that exhortation has two basic ideas. James says, if I want to exhort you as a gospel risk taker that God wants to use to tell the beautiful story of the gospel to a dying world in a dark place, then here's what I want to exhort you to do. I I want you to do two things. I want to exhort you to persevere until the Lord comes, and I want you to establish your heart by the promise of his soon return. I want you to persevere graciously until the Lord comes, and I want you to establish your heart by the promise of his soon return. And you can see that, can't you, in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then in verse 8, you see the second little component. You also, speaking to the brothers again, you also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And as we kind of made our way through that little section in James, we noted that persevering graciously and establishing our hearts, putting iron in our soul, to kind of paraphrase James a little bit, is somehow tied to God's faithfulness in a promise that he has repeatedly given you throughout the entirety of Scripture, and that promise is this. There is coming a person, a champion, who will set it all right. There is an anointed, appointed champion, and he's going to set it all right, and you know who he is. You have met him personally. You have followed him intentionally. 
Your life has been transformed by His grace. And because of what He has done for you and in you, He has equipped you so that you can take your living faith in Him as a gospel risk taker in hard places and dark spaces. If you persevere and you establish your heart, you can take that living faith and you can show the gospel story to anyone in any place. And James says, I want to exhort you to do that. And then James goes on to give a motivation for this. And it's pretty compelling. There is a compelling motivation that comes in verse 11. And it starts out this way. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And so what is James saying as he talks to us about this compelling motivation? He's saying this. Now, uh, the word behold there means pay attention. Grab on to this. Don't let this slip by you. As you think about persevering and as you think about being patient and as you establish your soul, here's the motivation. You know something. Consider is a word that shows up in this text. This is not the first time that James has talked to us like this. James has consistently brought our mind to bear on things that we know. And that's the idea behind the word consider here. The idea behind this word is that you count or that you reckon, that you see as true. And here's what you know is true. There are certain people who have been approved by God. That's the word for blessed. He said, we consider those blessed That word blessed there in verse 11 is a word that you've encountered throughout the Scriptures. For example, Jesus uses it repeatedly in Matthew 5 to describe what his disciples are like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. That word that Jesus uses in those Beatitudes is the same word that is coming up here. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man, and then the man is described for you. And so that word blessed is a word that actually at the end of the day talks about approval. It can mean internal happiness and contentment. It can mean external blessing. But as God uses it here and mostly throughout the Scripture, what it, sort of the big idea behind that word is this. There are people of whom God approves. And there are people of whom God not only approves, but he points to you and he says to you, now these people are praiseworthy. These people are worthy of your honor. And that's what James is saying here. James is saying, now as I introduce you to these friends, as you think about Abraham and as you think about Rahab and as you think about the prophets and now as you think about Job, there are people that God wants you to know, and he wants you to know them because he approves of them, and he wants you to honor them. And we met a whole bunch of them in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, there is a ton of people that are mentioned by name, and you know every one of them if you have been reading your Bible for any length of time. And here's what God says. Now, I want you to know something. These people are commendable. 
I am commending these people, and they have gotten this commendation from me because of their faith. And because of their faith, I am not, this is God saying this, I am not ashamed to be called their God. I I want the whole world to know that I have these people as my friends and I am their God. I approve of them. And James says, now, you know that there are people of whom God approves and these people that God approves of are people that he honors. And so we have two questions this morning, and that is, well, who are these people and why does God approve of them? And so notice kind of how he plays out this in verse 11. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. In other words, there was a season, a prolonged season of life in their day, and what happened in that period of time, you could take that entire period of time and you could describe it in one word. You could describe it in the word suffering. You could take these people and you could take whatever period of time uh, the writers of Scripture point to you and you could say now for that entire period of time, they got up every day, they got up week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, and we look at that entire period of time and if there was a word to put on all of it, it would be this word, suffering. You can think of people like this in the Scriptures. But of all the people that you can think of, there is one name that immediately comes to mind when you want to go to your Bible and say, now I want to find a man who endured a lengthy period of prolonged pain and unexplained suffering. And James says, now of all the people that have suffered, there is one name that, that models this more than any other, and the name is Job. You have heard of the endurance, the perseverance of Job. So after exhorting us and motivating us, what he does next is he gives us an example. He gives us a powerful illustration, a powerful example. And you know things about Job. His story is told in 42 chapters. And you could take the life of Job and you would say these things about Job. The suffering that he endured, fierce, prolonged, devastating, completely uh I mean, to the point where he just, he couldn't hardly even breathe. When you see the suffering of Job and and, and you start reading the account, you immediately know something. You know things that Job never knew. Because the story of Job for you and for me starts two chapters before it ever started for Job. I mean, if you're... You know, if Job were telling you the story of his suffering and if we brought him here today and we said to him, so Job, tell us about the story, he would not start in chapter 1. Well, he might now because he's been to heaven. But if he hadn't been to heaven yet, he would not start in chapter 1 and he would not start in chapter 2, he would start in chapter 3. He would tell you about events that we read about in chapter 1, but he would have no framework of the bigger, immense story 
that is going on in a very real realm that Job's eyes, and by the way, your eyes, are not equipped to see. And so God says, before I tell you the story of Job, I need to tell you the context of that story. And so as you think about the story, and you've heard the story your whole life, you know, we could just summarize for James's purpose this morning that all of what happened to Job was orchestrated by God. It was orchestrated by God. And, and it started off by God wanting everybody to know how he felt about the man that is about to go through this incredible season of suffering. God says, before I introduce the suffering, I want to tell you how I feel about this man. Listen to how God describes him. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And here's what God says, now I want you to know something about Job. That man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. That's the first thing God says to you about Job. And then he talks to Satan. It's not just that he wants you to know that. He wants to remind Satan of that. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This this man that I'm commending is actually my servant. That puts him on par with Abraham and with Moses and the prophets. He's going to point to another coming servant. This one is my servant. And by the way, have you ever thought that God might be talking about you that way? to an audience you have no idea is listening? I mean, if we could have hung out with Job on the day that God had this conversation with the universe, we would not have been aware, and Job would not have been aware of it at all. He would have got up that morning, and he would have done what he did every morning of his life. He would have gone through his day without ever knowing that there was an actual conversation going on in heaven, in the heavenly realm about him. And you know what, folks? Don't be surprised if God isn't also saying those kinds of things about you. There is my servant, and he puts your name in Job's place. And because of the work of my son, Jesus Christ, my servant, your name, is blameless. Have you considered my servant, Job? And so the orchestration of God's suffering for Job begins with that testimony, that commendation, just so we know who we're talking about. And God says, now... Satan, have you considered? James just said, we consider. You go back to Job, and, and, and God says to Satan, have you considered? James says, have you considered a person like Job? And we consider Job approved because of something. And God says, have you considered, Satan, my servant, Job? That's almost jarring. It's like, how in the world could God be pointing out to an obedient service, or servant rather, and, and pushing him in Satan's direction? Have you considered my servant Job? This occurs twice in Job 1, 1 verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3. And, and then God says, now, as I orchestrate all of this, I want you to know something else. I, I'm the one directing all of this, but I'm also boundering it. I'm going to let Satan go so far, and that's as far as he goes. Behold, all that he has is in your hand, he tells Satan. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan says, okay, you know what? Everybody here knows 
Here's the conversation Job has no idea is going on. Job's down here living his life, and there is this incredible conversation going on in a very real realm where all of the intelligent created beings in the universe are watching and hearing, and and there's a conversation they're witnessing between God and Satan, and God has said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, of course, we've all considered him, and everybody knows exactly why he's doing what you just pointed out. We all know why he serves you. He put it this way, does Job serve you for no reason? Of course he serves you. And the reason is well known to everybody here. And God says to Satan, behold, everything that he has is in your hand. Now let me stop for a minute and ask you a very personal question. How would you feel And how would you respond if you overheard God saying to Satan about you, everything that he or she has is in your hand to do with as you wish. You just can't touch their life. All of their possessions, all of their wealth, their livelihood, their family, their children. You can do whatever you want with it, but you cannot touch the person of my servant. If God said that to Satan about you, would you be okay with that? That's a very sobering question. That's the 9-11 of your personal life. That's the plane that just flew into your world and flew into your life, and it exploded. And you woke up one morning, and by the end of that day, life as you knew it was never going to be the same. And you have a ton of questions you don't even know how to ask. How do you even process the death of all of your children in one afternoon. It's like blow after blow. It's like wave after wave after wave. It touches every venue of Job's life. This suffering is described in God's Word, and here's what God wants you to see about that suffering. It's not circumstantial. It's not just accidental. This is a ruthless accusation that is coming against Job by Satan. And he's saying, listen, I know why he serves you. He serves you because of what you give him. This isn't Job loving you because you're God. This is Job liking you because of what you give him. And so the minute you take away the stuff, Job's heart's gone. There's this incredible accusation that is brought And then there's this relentless attack on everything, on Job's possessions, on his people, his children, his person, his integrity. By the time it's all done, his three wise friends that represent the wisdom systems of the world come to him, and they're basically saying, Job, we don't know what's going on, but we do know this. You cannot be righteous. Because God does not do this to righteous people. And so if this is happening to you, then you just need to get honest because somewhere in there, there is something that's causing God to do this. And so here is Job, and he is all alone. As this unfolds in real time, he is all alone. Everything is gone. For the second time, I mean, Satan has 
taking away everything. And Job falls to his face. He falls to his knees and, and he worships. And, and, and here's what he says. Shall we receive good and not evil? Here's what he says. Naked came I into the world and naked go I out. In other words, I'm going out just like I came in. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know what God said? I want you to know something. Job, my servant, did not sin with his lips. I, I, I don't know how. how. How do you do that? I, I have two children who we love dearly. Beth and I love these children dearly, and we pray for them often. I cannot imagine going through what Job did. I, I don't think you could either. God has chosen that path for some of you like he chose it for Job. And I think if you could stand up and testify of that part of Job's journey, you would say to the rest of us, you have no idea. You have no idea. And you know what? We don't. But Job does. Everything was touched. His friends accused him of hidden sin. His wife came to him. Think about Job's wife, Mrs. Job. Because everything that happened to Job affected her. She lost children too. All of her possessions were gone with Job's. All of what happened to Job affected her. And so before we're too hard on her and we're too harsh with her, here she comes to Job in all of her anguish and in all of her pain. And she says to Job, Job, how long are you going to keep arguing that God is good? This isn't good. What has happened to us here isn't good. The loss of our children, are you kidding me? That's not good. The loss of all our wealth, that's not good. The loss of your health, that's not good. Job, how long are you going to sit here in this ash heap and keep exalting the goodness of God and your own integrity? Stop blessing God. Stop talking about how good God is. That's the idea behind cursing. It's not saying a bad word to God. It's simply saying, stop calling God blessed. Stop, stop talking about a God who does this to people. And, and that's where we're at a lot of times, isn't it? Somebody does something in our life and it hurts. Somebody touches something in our life and it, it just devastates. And we stop saying good things about that person. Even if they're a good person and they've done many good things, we stop saying good things about that person because they hurt us or they did something that was unrighteous in our eyes. And so here is Job's wife and she's doing the very thing that you and I do when we have these moments and she wants to know, Job, how long are you going to keep holding on to a God that you think is good when everything in our life Evidence is the fact that, that you got it wrong. He's not good in this. This is not good. And Job says, shall we receive good and not disaster also from the hand of the Lord? I mean, you can just see how this unfolds. These unseen, unforeseen, unexplained attacks are not coming out of nowhere. They are coming out of a spiritual being who is trying to shame God 
in the courts of heaven. And God says, I have a champion. I have a servant, and his name is Job. And I'm going to put everything on this gospel risk taker because this gospel risk taker, I promise you, when he gets in that dark place and he gets in that hard space, his living faith in me, his wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith will sustain him. He won't abandon me. He won't turn against me. He won't speak evil of me. Do what you will. And so this war unfolds. Job affirms all of this in word and deed. Listen to what he does. He affirms the providence of God. In the midst of all of this, when when all of this is going down, here's Job's affirmation. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He affirms the goodness of God. He said to his wife, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil also in all of this? Job did not sin with his lips. He affirms the sovereignty of God. He affirms God's right to do all this. He said this, though he slay me. Even if he takes away my life, and it sure looked that way, didn't it? Though he slay me, yet will I what? Trust him. It's an amazing statement. He affirms the faithfulness of God. I know that my Redeemer lives and will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. He affirms the faithfulness of God. He affirms the power and the authority of God. I know that you can do all things. Job says when he talks to God in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And at the end of the day, here's the greatest statement Job Job makes. He trusts in the midst of all of this unanswered, unexplained suffering. He says, he knows the way that I take. And when I am tried, I will come forth as gold. Now, we read these in Job, and and, and they sort of unfold for us, but they become for us this immense application, very personalized in, in our own lives. Because here's what Job did. Here's the application of all of this. Job turned to God, Job clung to God, and Job hoped in God. In the midst of all of this, he turned, he clung And he hoped. He turned to God with all of his heart. Listen to the words. The Bible says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So what did Job say? What poured out of his mouth when when he was in the furnace and God kept turning up the heat? What came out of his mouth? And, And what came out of his mouth were the things we just read together. He clung to God with all of his strength. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's an amazing statement. And he hoped in God. He he never abandoned his faith. He never wavered in his obedience. He never spoke wickedly about God. And he never spoke sinfully to God. But Job did a lot of talking in the book in the midst of suffering. And thousands of years later, James says, now, and I want you to think about an approved man, a gospel risk taker, 
who God equipped to tell the beautiful story of the gospel in the most difficult place and in the darkest space for a lengthy period of his life at great personal cost. What came out of his mouth and what was displayed in his life? And James says, if I could sum that all up in one word, it's the word steadfast. What came out of his life and what came out of his lips, James says, if I could sum it all up. I mean, you could go back for 42 chapters and you could, you could watch the orchestration of this. You could watch the unfolding of this. You, you could watch what comes out of Job's mouth. You could hear what comes into Job's ears from his friends. You, you could see it all. And, and James says, now, if I were going to put one word on the 42 chapters that sum up Job's life, here's the word. He was steadfast. He endured. So if God were to take the season of life that you're in that you would rather not be in, that season where it was so full of pain, that season where the, 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 just seemed like the wave just came over and over and you got knocked down by the first wave and you got up and you were just trying to catch your breath and a bigger wave came and knocked you right down. And you've all been out there in the ocean and experienced that. It's, it's one thing when you're experiencing that on vacation at the ocean. It's a different thing when that's really what's going on in your life. And here's a question that James wants you to think about. Would God describe that season in your life with the word steadfast? And the only way that steadfastness is going to be the mark of our life is when our faith is living, when it is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. And so what is it that we are trusting? And here's what we're trusting. We're trusting that God is doing something bigger than we understand. That's what we have to trust. James says it this way, we know you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the end, the purpose, the goal, the telos. You have seen the end of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and mercy. So what is God up to? What is God up to? And so here's what God is up to. And the reason we know this is because we have a man who endured for a season and we have 42 chapters that tell us about what happened to Job, but they also tell us a much bigger story. And that's the kind of thing that God is doing in your suffering, even though you may be like Job and you don't know about it. So what is God doing? Well, he's proving the preciousness, the authenticity of the faith of his servant. Peter said it this way. You know 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested authenticity, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, even the gold that perishes, even when it's tested by fire, you have something more precious than that, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God says, I want, Satan, you want to know something? I want you to see the genuineness of that faith. You have accused my servant. You have falsely accused. Do you realize, folks, that Satan is in heaven and he's making false accusation after false accusation after false accusation, not just about Job, but about you? 
And God says, all right, you've made an accusation against my service, my servant. I'm going to show you the genuineness of that faith. Bring it on. Turn up the heat. And at every point, Satan has to come back to God and report. And God's like, well, how did it go? So what'd you find out? <clears throat> well, okay, you know, we took away his stuff and he still follows you. But, but let me just tell you something, God. Skin for skin. All that a man has will he give up for his life. And the reason that I haven't been get him, get him, uh, to able, to, able to get him to turn or, or to abandon or to deny is because you won't let me touch the one thing that he cherishes above everything else, and that's his life. And God says, all right, you can touch his body. You can do anything you want. You can fill it up with the worst and most painful of diseases. You just can't take his life away because that's not yours. That's mine. And so it all happens, and Job says, in the most dark moment, this gospel risk taker, not knowing anything's going on in heaven, just lifts his voice and says, though he slay me, I am going to trust him. Wow. In the city of Peru, numbers of years ago, the Peruvian football team was in the world championship. They hadn't been in the world championship many times in the past, but they were that year. And so all of Peru, all of Lima, all of Peru was watching this. And when their team scored the winning goal, there was a minor earthquake that registered in the city of Lima because so many people got off their couches and were jumping up and down. This is true. You can actually go and see this. This is actually true. These people were so excited that their team had scored the winning goal that they were jumping up and down, and there were so many people jumping up and down at the same time that they created a minor earthquake. The earth literally moved because some guy in a Peruvian jersey took a little white ball and put it in a net. And the whole, the whole country shook with joy. You say, well, what's the point of that? We're talking about Job. There is a heavenly audience to this, and they are watching this one player, and he is down there, and every everything that the other team has is being thrown at him. And at the moment, at the most critical moment, he fires a shot, and it goes right into the goal. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I promise you, what went on in heaven that moment was was incredibly greater than that little tiny earthquake that got caused in the city of Lima, Peru some years ago. And Satan was shamed in front of the entire cosmic intelligences. And then God did this to deepen and mature Job's faith, and he does it to deepen and mature your faith. He displays the beauty of his compassion and the deep mercy that is such a part of his nature in, in times like this. And, and all of this results in the deepening of our intimacy with him. Let me say it to you this way. When you go through a dark moment in life, I, many years ago, had a friend, and Beth and I were going through a very dark period in our own lives because of Beth's cancer. And, and this friend <clears throat> was going through his own very deep journey 
because of the unexpected death of his oldest son. And our two lives converged in those two trials and in those two dark places. And I don't know how to explain this to you, but, but I can just tell you this. There were days where we would just get together and we would sit in his car or we would sit in my car. We'd be out at a Starbucks or we'd be at a Dunkin' Donuts or we'd be out somewhere and we couldn't even talk because we were just weeping. And there really weren't any words to say. And sometimes we would talk and what would come out of our mouth is very raw. It's not the kind of talk you, you would expect for two mature Christians to have, but that talk was just coming out. It was very raw. And he would sometimes just sit there, and, and I'd try to say things, and, and, and you could just tell that your words weren't really helping, and so you just shut up, thankfully, and then he would do the same. And this went on for over a year. But by the end of that year, our hearts were so knit together that to this day, to this day, there's an inseparable, unbreakable friendship that God forged in that time of mutual suffering. When you hurt with somebody else who's hurting, something happens. And here's the big point. When you hurt and God walks with you in that hurt, you and God get tight in ways that you could never, ever. You learn to talk to God. You learn how to express your heart to God. You know how to handle the grief. You, you actually get to know God. This is what Job said. He said this at the very end. He said, I used to know about you with the hearing of my ear, but now I know you with the seeing of my eye. What he's talking about there is experience. I know you through the experience. What experience? I've learned I've learned about you through my suffering. And so as you think about what God is doing, he's not just using you. He's not just displaying things. He is actually deepening his relationship with you. And he is coming into your life and you are coming into his life as a gospel risk taker who doesn't just know about God, but you actually know God. And that's why at the end of the day, you say to God, I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere on the planet. I'll, I'll, I'll endure anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll say what needs to be said. I'll do whatever needs to be done because I know you and I trust you. I didn't learn about you in the Sunday school class. I didn't sit in a church and hear sermons about you. I forged a relationship with you in a furnace that I'll never forget. And I will go anywhere and do anything because I trust you and I love you. And people that have gone through that would say, I never want to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Lord, thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for how it works in our life. We pray that your good hand would take these words and use them as only you can in our life and in our soul and in our heart, not just as a church, but as individual people. Lord, we want these words to deepen not just our knowledge about you, but our love for you, our intimacy with you, so that we would walk away like Job, 
having experienced the mercy and the compassion that are so much a part of who you are. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.